The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. At this time, I'd like to ask that you please take out your Bibles. We're going to begin once again in our series in the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 15. We live in a world that is increasingly desensitized to violence. Just consider the way that you responded to the shooting this time that it happened in Florida as compared to times before. Perhaps the first time you heard of a a school shooting. For some reason, each and every time, it it just lessens the blow in my heart. I, I don't take it in as deeply as I did the time before. And that's a sad thing. We are becoming desensitized to violence. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the average American child who is born today will see over 16,000 simulated murders on television before they turn 18. Think back over your favorite movies that have come out in recent years and think of just how much death you have seen on the screen. I'm a nerd. I like nerdy movies. I like Marvel movies that come out every couple of them every year. Um, and I, I just checked over the past um, several years. There's a group of them that have come out. In the first 17 in this block of big movies that they've been doing, there is a body count of on-screen deaths, 1,117. The Lord of the Rings is a series I also enjoy. And The Return of the King itself, by its own, just the one movie, although it's a very long movie, has 836 on-screen deaths, if you include all of the different races that Tolkien created. That doesn't include any of the violence that we see in video games or in other ways that come into our minds. Now, if any of us saw these things happen in person, in real life, we would be traumatized. We would never forget. It is a terrifying thing and a major thing to see someone take their last breath. But we are seemingly not affected because as we see these things on television or in screen or in some other format we relegate them to the realm of fantasy. These are not real. It's just acting or it's just pixels on a screen. So when the director says cut, everyone stands back up and they go back to their normal lives and we know this. So when we see these things, we're seemingly unaffected and we've desensitized ourselves to violence. But I don't want you to view this passage that I'm about to read in that way. I don't want you to see this as some kind of fantasy. There's no soundstage. There's no digital effects. There is no makeup. The visceral nature of what I am about to say should make you uncomfortable. This should bother our souls as we see this is not acting. This is the Son of God suffering for us. So please read along with me, starting in Mark chapter 15, verse 15. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! 
And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Our God, as we come before these words today, Lord, I ask that there would be a logical response. I pray that there would be an emotional response. But Lord, those two are very quickly fading So I ask, Lord, that you would please give us a spiritual response. May we walk out of this place different people, changed people. Lord, we pray knowing that we rely on you, and apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, in full dependence, we declare to you right now our desperate need to be changed. God, please let us see your son's love for us today and love in return. May we grow ever more in our love for him as we see your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today's sermon is going to be very, very simple. It's a two-part outline. We begin with Jesus was scourged, and then we will consider that Jesus was mocked. Perhaps the most universally hated and detested individual in our nation right now is Larry Nasser. This man was accused of consistently and habitually using his position as an Olympic doctor to assault over 150 young girls. So it should come as no surprise that many of the latest viral, viral videos that have hit the internet have come from this historic court case. One of these videos captured the response of a man named Randall Margraves, the father of three girls who were all assaulted by this man. This man requested that the judge allow a, a very unique sentence. He said, quote, grant me five minutes in a locked room with this demon. When the judge refused, Margraves furiously charged at Nasser. You could see the hate in his eyes, and he was immediately tackled by three courtroom bailiffs, and he was brought to the ground and stopped immediately. How many of you have seen that video? I'm just curious. The majority, I would say, here in the room. One of the most interesting things about this video is the reactions that I've seen to it, the way that people have responded to it. Most everyone seems to be in full approval of what Randall Margraves did there. Most even cheered him on. Many others said, if I were in the courtroom, I would have done the same thing. The actions of this father are viewed as appropriate retributive justice. However, we live in a country that gives all of its citizens protections against cruel and unusual punishment, even guilty people. As we consider the scourging of Jesus, we see that he had no such protections. There was no one tackling these soldiers to the ground. There were no bailiffs to protect him. Instead, Jesus, the innocent one, experienced some of the greatest suffering any human could ever bear, even before he was nailed to the cross. So this first point that I want you to see from Mark 15 comes from just four short words. It's the kind of phrase that as you're reading, you might flutter right by it. In the blink of an eye, these words are behind you. But any reader in the first century who came across them would have stopped in shock at this word, scourged, scourged. I probably don't need to tell you, but the whip that was used on the back of our Lord was a cat of nine tails. It had long strips of leather. And in the end of these strips of leather were sharp rocks and pieces of bone and glass. The Romans would take turns beating the back of prisoners so that each blow would have rested would have come from the force of a rested soldier. The whip would sink deep into the skin of the individual. It would be ripping and tearing large swaths of skin away each and every time. 
So with each blow, more deep tissue and bone would be exposed, allowing the next blow to dig even deeper. 39 times Jesus Christ was flogged, which means if this whip did indeed have actually nine tails to it, there would have been 351 individual lacerations. They would have marked him from his head to his feet. Many people who were scourged in this manner didn't make it through 39. They died of blood loss and shock and trauma before they reached the end of this process. There are many things that I could say about this in terms of physiological effects. We have a doctor in the room. He could tell you many things about the physiological effects of these occurrences. Doctors have studied all of what this would do as someone was tortured in this way. But these wounds, these wounds were foretold 700 years before they were made on Christ's back. And these wounds have a much deeper meaning than just the physical pain and trauma that they would be forced on Jesus. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So I want to take some time for us to dwell on that for a moment. Just to consider, what does that mean? There are only a few Bible verses, I think, that are more abused and misused than this one. So I want to take some time to consider the genuine meaning that the Bible has behind this statement that by his wounds we have been healed. When we speak about healing in our modern world, we are almost always talking about the body. We are talking about physical healing. But the Bible uses the word healing for many different metaphorical purposes. There's a lot of examples, but I'm just going to pick a few of them here for you from the Old Testament. Most of these are verses that you probably will recognize. At the inauguration of the first temple, God spoke to Solomon and gave directions for the nations. He said, in part, these words in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people... If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. He's going to heal the land? Think about the Lion King here. You know at the end of the movie when Simba comes back and he commits regicide and throws Scar off of the cliff and then all the hyenas come and they all get burned up. And so all of the evil in the land is gone. And so there's this beautiful depiction of the rains begin coming down. And it shifts the camera to this incredible metaphor of all these bones that are up in this dry area washing away. And then all of a sudden grass begins to grow. You know that picture. He will heal their land. Here he's telling them, you're going to have devastation over your land. That is your life for your food. I'm going to heal that if you will turn and pray. So that's one kind of healing that the Bible offers. In Psalm 147, verse 3, it says, He healed the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. Part of God's gracious ministry to us is to heal our broken hearts. The kind of wounds that, you, that are mentioned here are not physical. These are emotional wounds that it's talking about in the process of God healing us. 
Many of us here can attest to the fact, the kindness of God in the way that he has worked in healing our emotional pain. Hosea 14.4 gives us even another picture of deeper healing. He says, quote, I will heal their apostasy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Apostasy is when somebody has called themselves a child of God, yet they have proven either with their life or their profession or their actions that they have rejected him. And so now this statement, the Lord is declaring that there is a healing coming upon apostate Israel. He is going to do a work in their heart that is going to cause a radical spiritual healing to take place. In a similar way, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 22 says, <clears throat> the Lord speaking to Israel, return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. It's a small sampling There's a smorgasbord of examples that I could draw from of healing in the Old Testament that are not speaking about the physical body at all. So the question that we should be asking is, what kind of healing is Isaiah 53 talking about? What kind of wounds are we being healed from? What is Jesus doing for us in Mark 15, 15 when he is scourged? What is he accomplishing? And we can know the answer to that because the Lord has graciously provided for us in the New Testament a passage that picks up Isaiah 53, 5, and it answers these questions for us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, it's not a new paragraph, not a new thought. He says, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now it's absolutely clear that the term wounds is referring to what Christ is suffering leading up and during his time on the cross. But who is the you here? Who is he talking to by his stripes? You are healed. You have been healed. First of all, who is this book written to? It's written specifically to the people of God. In verse 7, Peter refers to his audience as you who believe. In verse 9, he calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In verse 10, he refers to them as God's people. And in verse 11, he calls them beloved. Certainly, this is about Christians. It should be clear that he's talking about believers. And if you look at verse 24, it's indicating that this healing is for those people whose sins were laid on Christ's body. It is for those who have died to sin and seek to live to righteousness. So in simple summary, who is it that he is saying, by his wounds, you have been healed? It's all who believe. Do not miss the scope here. This is not speaking about some Christians. It is speaking about every one of those people who are saved by grace through faith. Now, both in the original Greek and in our English translation, the verb tense is very, very important here. By his wounds, you have been healed. Have been healed. This is not a past. This is not a future opportunity. This is not something that can be accomplished. It is something something that has happened for all who believes. By his wounds, you have been healed. So in what way did Jesus heal us? Is it physical? The answer, I believe, is obviously no. 
because not all who come to Christ need physical healing. And many who do need physical healing because they have sickness or disease of some sort don't experience freedom from that in this lifetime. So is it emotional healing that Jesus is talking about? Is he healing our land? Is he healing our finances? Is he healing our relationships with others? Is it something else that's physical or temporal? Look again at, at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25. I believe here it defines for us very clearly the sickness from which we have been healed. It says, for you have been straying like sheep. You were straying like sheep. That is the sickness. But the cure is you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The sickness is the separation we have encountered with God. The wounds that Christ bore heals the worst and most widespread disease in all of world history. The disease of sin. Sin causes separation between us and God. God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not moved. But we have moved farther and farther away from him. We have left him. We have rejected him. We have rebelled and run far from him. Isaiah 59 verse 2 explains it this way. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Sin causes separation from God. And from this we have been healed. So let's jump back now to Mark. The imagery here is stunning that as a whip was going into his back and ripping away his flesh, he is healing us. This process is bringing us to God. He is in that mindset recognizing I am doing this and absorbing this and encountering this so that people who are sitting in this room right now can have their relationship with God corrected and be completely reconciled. Later, there would be nails placed into his hands. And there would be a crown of thorn placed on his head. And in all of this, Jesus is presenting to us a shocking picture of just how much he loves us. That he would experience pain and anguish so that he could pick us up and carry us to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. That we who like sheep have gone astray might be found by Christ and taken into his flock by his wounds. As we sang, by his wounds, we are healed. And this healing is a spiritual healing. And for that, we should be amazingly thankful. Because anything less is temporary. All these other kinds of healing that people will think this might be, they're not lasting. They end at death. But this kind of spiritual healing is everlasting. It's far more needed than any other kind of healing we could ever experience. Now, there's many things that I could say about this truth. I actually had like eight pages of applications here. I could talk about a lot of them. And I think all of them are are good. I could speak about how we could graciously seek to persuade those who have been drawn into the false teaching of the health, wealth, gospel that's leading so many from Christ. I could dive into a study on healing in the Bible and how we are still supposed to be praying for healing and that no one is ever healed apart from the kindness of God. And how the New Testament actually commands, for example, in the book of James, if you are sick, to go to the church and ask for prayer. I could give a systematic outline of why the miraculous sign gifts have ceased and they were only for a specific time during the apostolic era. I could spend the rest of our time today warning against false teachers who have turned the suffering of Christ into an opportunity for their own profit. 
I could give instruction about how to avoid them and avoid supporting them in any way. And all of those things would be worthwhile endeavors. But I think they all pale in comparison to this. Be in awe of the love of God that is displayed in the suffering of Jesus. Be in awe of his love for you. One of the reasons 1 Peter chapter 2 gives us for the suffering of Christ is so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now this seems to have two meanings. There's an initial death and penalty of, uh, where the penalty and power of sin over our lives is removed when we are first saved. But in an ongoing way, we must live to righteousness. The power of sin is gone, so now we live for Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Now, it's absolutely appropriate for us to consider the suffering of Christ when we're being tempted. When your flesh is beginning to seek and desire something that is sinful, and you know it's wrong, consider what Christ has done for you. Consider how much he loved you. The Bible doesn't merely use the sufferings of Christ, though, as an emotional argument against sin, nor just a logical one. Although our emotions and our minds should recognize that Sin caused the suffering of our Savior. It should cause us to run from it. But your logic and your emotions are faulty. And if you trust in those things to keep you from sin, you will sin constantly. But far more importantly, the sufferings of Christ were effectual. His eventual death and burial and resurrection bought us. There was an exchange that took place. We have peace with God because he purchased our souls. There is a new spiritual reality that exists for a believer. We have been crucified with Christ. And the wounds that he bore in his body are certifications of grace that declare us innocent before the Father. Earlier I mentioned Larry Nasser, And when I say his name, many probably shiver in disgust. There was a father who wanted just five minutes to exact his own personal judgment on this man. Please hear me when I say there is no way that in five minutes justice could be achieved by that man. In fact, I don't think that there is any way that justice could ever be fully achieved on this earth to repay that man for his crimes. If you remember two weeks ago, I mentioned that heaven makes up for the injustices that the world gets wrong. The reality is so does hell. And there is no crime that will not meet its punishment. God is not mocked. He is a just judge and he will by no means clear the guilty. And the bad news is we're all guilty of breaking God's commandments. It should shock us. It should disturb us to think of Larry Nasser and Jesus in the same sentence. Setting them side by side, we would say that one is loving. One is righteous. One is kind. The other is perverse and hateful and filthy. There's no comparison between the two. But this is the glorious nature of the cross. That Jesus, the innocent one, experienced hostility from man. And he experienced judgment from God so that men and women who have lived lives filled with sin might experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Randall Margraves, that father I spoke about earlier who was angry and attacked Nasser, was not the only one who had something to say during these trials. One of Nasser's other victims, Rachel Denhalander, had this to say to the man who abused her. She said, The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and his eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace 
and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. End quote. This young woman is absolutely correct in saying that God could save this man. God could save a wicked man like Larry Nasser. If he would repent and believe in the gospel, all of these disgusting and vile acts would be gone. And how can it be? How can it be that someone like him could ever be in heaven? Because by the wounds of Christ, broken and sinful and hateful and disgusting people like Larry Nasser can be forgiven. There is a natural uncomfortability for us in this. And it exists in us because we see other people as wicked and we see ourselves as good. How could someone like Larry Nasser or a slave trader or a murderer or a drug dealer experience fellowship and closeness with God in heaven forever? Don't you see you and I are guilty before God too? You might compare yourself to a monster like Nasser and see yourself as a good person, but the Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the way that you view sin in this wicked man with rightful contempt and righteous indignation that you have towards those vile sins, God views your breaches of sin, your breaches of the law, every single one of them as vile and worthy of eternal judgment. Even the things that you think are so mild, he sees them as cosmic treason. But this is the good news. This is the good news that we are all deserving of punishment, but Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, the just for the unjust. And the God, God the Father, would not be restrained in punishing these sins. Now, earlier I spoke of a father who ran after someone seeking to ex- express his hatred and, and violent retribution towards him, and he was stopped. He was tackled to the ground, but there was no one to tackle God the Father when he poured out his wrath on his own son at the cross. He placed an eternity worth of punishment on Christ. The physical wounds of Jesus were real, but they were merely a visual picture of what was happening on a spiritual level. These wounds represent the punishment that Jesus experienced from God the Father on our behalf. These wounds should bring us to our knees in thankfulness, for they represent the infinite love. They represent the boundless mercy of God. See those wounds in your mind and know, know that God has committed to reconciling you to himself so much so that he sent Jesus to experience this in your place. Which brings us now to our second point from this text, that Jesus was mocked. This point is going to be brief, mainly because it's just going to be incomplete. It's simply going to give us a kind of introduction that we should expect to see for the rest of this chapter. Keep in mind that Jesus has now been brutalized by the scourging that he would literally be struggling to keep himself conscious. There would be so much pain and blood loss that it would be difficult for him to ever stand in his own strength. The pain would have come in waves at every moment as more flesh would move and expose all of his lower levels of flesh to the open air, and more nerve endings would have been firing. This is the state of Jesus Christ when we reach verse 16. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, 
And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of a purple cloak, of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they laid him out to crucify him. Well, let's consider these actions through two lenses. First, consider the cruelty and then the irony. All people have the capacity for cruelty. We all do. There's no such thing as a person who wouldn't hurt a fly. If you don't believe me, go spend time in children's ministry. Kids are cruel. It doesn't take long to see that each and every individual, even the sweetest and most adorable among them, have the ability to crush others with their words and with their actions. As Proverbs 18.21 says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. In recent decades, <clears throat> we've used this term, bullying. Even the most ardent believers in atheism, those who argue that deep down all men are essentially good, still recognize that bullying is a trait that is inbred into all people. Even people who deny the existence of God, even people who, who deny the grand scheme of morality, will tell you, That bullying is a trait that is innate in every human being. One scientific study uh, put forth its response this way. It calls bullying, quote, a ridiculous and disastrous relic of evolution. Of course, we don't believe in evolution. We know why we bully. We know why we're cruel. We are cruel because we are sinners by nature. We are cruel because we are sinners by choice. What had Jesus ever done to these soldiers? What had he ever done to them? Nothing. They had likely never even encountered Jesus before this day. Yet they had a victim on their hands. They could gang up on him. He had no ability to fight back. So instead of defending him or attempting to lessen his suffering, they sought to make his last few hours the most horrible that he had ever experienced. I like how one preacher refers to this as God in the hands of angry sinners. So they threaded together a circlet of thorns and they jammed them into his brow and they hit him repeatedly on the head with a reed which would have pushed those thorns further and further into his skin. And perhaps most painfully of all, they placed a robe on him which would have served as a kind of gauze sealing closed those different wounds that had been torn open on his back. And then after a few minutes, they ripped it off of him, reopening every single gash. Not only is this cruel, this is deeply ironic. The robe that Jesus wore was an expensive kingly robe. It's the kind of thing that a prince would take to a coronation ceremony. When they were being lifted up and set on the throne, the thorns that were made into a crown, they symbolize authority. A crown symbolizes power. And then in mock adoration, they actually knelt down and they actually begin to pretend to declare fealty to him. Hail, King of the Jews. The same Jesus, the one who we see in Isaiah 6, seated on the throne room of heaven, is being worshipped by angels there. He is deserving of genuine worship. He is deserving of adoration. Jesus is worthy for these men to literally drop down and have their hearts declare, You are my king. He was, even in that moment, the king of kings and lord of lords. But instead, these wicked men would only offer up a scornful substitute. Hail, king of the Jews. Just as Mark has so often done, he's writing these things so that they might be a mirror for our souls. 
These violent scoffers, they are living pictures of what our hearts were like before we were saved. Early Wednesday morning, Billy Graham died. I think everyone in America knows this by now. And although I've made, I have some concerns about his theology, uh, although I would disagree with him on some things, I think he made some serious ministerial mistakes. I am convinced that the Lord used him to bring many to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. That man was used by God in mighty ways. And after his death, I, I went to YouTube and I watched a lot of his different preaching. I watched a lot of his interviews. I, was, I, I watched more of him on that day than I have any day in my entire life. And I was intrigued to see a video I had never seen before. It was once when he was interviewed by Woody Allen many years ago. And during the interview, Woody Allen was making a mockery of the notion of God. He was making a mockery of the idea of salvation. And you could see this underlying contempt for the idea that God would be the authority or the judge or master over him. And when Billy Graham was speaking about idolatry as an offense against God and saying that God commands that we worship him alone, Woody Allen sarcastically just asked him, and you don't see that as some kind of an egomaniacal position? Now, Woody Allen had no understanding of the goodness of God. And he was mocking Billy Graham as a servant of God and mocking the notion of salvation itself. But I was encouraged to see this evangelist, Billy Graham, graciously communicate truth to the mocking interviewer. And in the process, I was reminded that the heart of every fool is to scoff at God. Psalm 53.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And Matthew 12.34 tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is sin but to pretend that God is not who he says he is? And to do what we want anyway. There are only two kinds of people. And there are only two kinds of people in this room. There are those who stand with the soldiers and who scoff at Jesus. Maybe with their words. Maybe with their lives. And there are those who have been saved. In spite of the fact that you used to be among them. I would like to take a moment to address both groups today. To those who do not know Christ in a saving way. Let me just ask you. Do you not see that your life is a mockery of God? Do you seek to honor him and serve him as he deserves? Do you glorify his son or do you simply call out to him when you're desperate and then forget him when you feel that your needs are fulfilled? Perhaps you scoff at God with your words. Maybe it's a practice of taking the Lord's name in vain, using curse language. You think so little of Christ that you have no fear of dragging his name through the mud. But even if none of what I've said above about you is true, if you have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and refused to bow the knee to Jesus as your king, the Bible is clear that every action you take is rebellion against God. It's an insurrection against the Savior. It's your own personal way of raising your middle finger to God and saying, I will live however I want to live. I will do whatever I want. I will be entertained. I will be satisfied. I will gratify my, my own desires. And I don't care about your standards. You either believe that God is too weak or too powerless or you believe that his holy standard is far from what the Bible says it is. So you ignore him and you scoff at him with your life. If this is you, please know God is merciful. God is merciful and he has been so patient with you. And God has sent Jesus to save scoffers and sinners like you and me, so that we who've rejected Jesus might become adopted members of the family of God. So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I plead with you. I call out to you and plead with you. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ for your salvation. And for those of us here who have been saved, those of us who have experienced God's work in our hearts to transfer 
to transfer all of our sin and rebellion to Christ and his righteousness to us. I want to encourage you. Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We who once scoffed at the Lord, how can we keep from rejoicing in him? How can we allow our hearts to think little of him? How could we ignore our king? As we sang earlier, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his own blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. So brothers and sisters, former scoffers, I call on you to delight in Christ in your heart. With your mouths, honor him in all of your conversation, in your actions. May we live like citizens of heaven, not the rebels we used to be. May we salute him genuinely with our life. Hail, King of Kings! And may we kneel before him in all that we say, in all that we think, in all that we do. As I said before, this is really just an introduction to the mockery and the scoffing that will come at Jesus. He will encounter much worse even as we approach his death. The next time we hear from the book of Mark, we'll see Jesus carrying a cross up a hill where he's going to die for us. So let's never be desensitized to that. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, I pray that today you would help us to respond from what we have heard in deep love for your son. May we never, Lord, may we never ignore it, think little of it, May we live in light of it in all, all of our ways. For those who are here that don't know you, God, please help them see their desperate position. Lord, they are living currently as though it's not a big deal. God, I pray that you would please save them. And God, I pray for those of us who have been saved, that we would never, never think highly of ourselves, but we would see ourselves as those kinds of people deserving of hell, for your word says we are. But let us rejoice in the fact that we have been saved by grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.